0: Hello, everyone. Simon Jacobson here, and we're here to discuss the third partner in your life. I welcome those here on location as well as the multitudes online. So here's the opening question. How many partners does it take to turn the light bulb? Just kidding. How many partners are there in a relationship? So ostensibly most people would say two. Spouses, two friends, two partners. In a relationship, however, many psychologists say that there are at least six people in the relationship. There is the husband, wife, the spouses, and there's the set of each of their parents. So that's two, four, six. Because parent, parental attitudes. From the earliest state, from the earliest uh, informative, informative years of our lives shape our our attitudes to relationships. So then when you're together with your partner, with your spouse, you're bringing into it not just you and her or you and him, but also your parents and their attitudes. When you throw into the equation other relationships we've had in the past, whether previous marriage, previous serious relationship, so then you just add more to the equation. It can get quite complicated where so many different personalities and certainly so many people are partnering in one marriage or one relationship. On the other end of the spectrum, some argue, some cynics argue, and even evolutionary biologists would argue, especially with the more radical views of uh, the selfish gene, that there is no such thing as a relationship. It's a myth. We only have a relationship with ourselves. You have a relationship with yourself. And as an extension of that, there are props in your life, there are people you meet that you will give because they give to you. But at the end of the day, every person is really just satisfying themselves and therefore they just, the classic of that, the extreme of that would be the narcissist, who of course narcissist is based on narcissist, who was in the, Greek, in the Greek mythology, someone who was looking entire his life, his entire life he was looking for a partner, for someone to love, an equal, and then he couldn't find anyone until he fell in love with the reflection of his face in the water. Which, interestingly, by contrast, King Solomon's version of the face in the water is the exact opposite. In Narcissus' case, it was he fell in love with his face, and he fell in love with himself, basically, his relationship with himself, and nobody came close. It was like someone with a mirror-mirror on the wall. In King Solomon's expression, in the book of uh, Proverbs, it says, "As As a face is reflected in water, so too one heart is reflected in another. So it's not just the first half of the verse. First half of the verse, you look with your face, you look in water, you see your face in return. But King Solomon applies that to love. The so, so too, when one, one heart reflect, is reflected in another, so when you reach with your heart to someone else, they respond to you like a face responds in water. So in, that, so in the analogy, in the muscle, it's your own face. But in the analogy of love, in the I'm, I'm sorry, in the moral of love, in the love moral, there it's the love with another person. But yet there are those that interpret relationships in that way, that it's essentially relationship with yourself. It's all about self-love that simply extends to other people because it, makes, it enhances your own self and your own self-absorbed life. So good questions here. And the real question has to be asked. All the above I asked the question is how many partners in a relationship? Let's now rephrase the question and say how many partners in a healthy relationship? with emphasis on the word health healthy healthy relationship because the above could also be very unhealthy when you allow your parents and you allow previous relationships and you allow all kinds of other stuff to get in mix 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 itself get, get in the way of your relationship you can imagine it's not going to be a simple relationship because when your spouse is talking to you they're not just talking to you they're talking to your parents and your parents are talking through you at the at the, at the other which is why it's so important in a healthy therapy in a good therapy to try to regain healthy relationships is to get rid of as many outside voices as possible. It's not fear when you bring other people into the relationship, and you may may be doing this subconsciously, uh, not even intentionally, and it can only cause complications. So the question is how many partners in a healthy relationship? That's what we're gonna be talking about. I'm gonna introduce a new theme maybe that some of you may never have heard, and that is that actually a healthy relationship requires three partners. Not two, not four, not six, not eight, not 25, not to, but actually three partners. Two visible ones and one invisible one. And that's what we'll be discussing here. And it's a tremendous concept based on a Talmudic statement, but it has deep psychological implications and actually carries the secret of truly thriving, nourishing, sustainable, lasting, and growthful relationships, and ones that are mutually beneficial not just good for one and not, and, or, or for the other, but actually one that makes both people grow. Because at the end of the day, just think about it, any healthy har- harmony is always going to have three dimensions. The one dimension contributed by one unit, then by another unit, and by the synergy that comes together. Think of music. Think of art. When you look at a color blue, color red, other colors, each individual color has purpose. But beauty is never the domain of one color. You, can't, color. you may have a favorite color, but beauty is always going to be harmony within diversity. When you combine many different colors in the right way, it creates a synthesis, a harmony. So it's not blue, nor red, or green, or yellow, or any other colors. It's the rainbow effect. Not always a rainbow, but it's the combination. When you look at it, a piece of art, or you look at a beautiful face, it's not one feature that makes it beautiful. It's going to be many features, but there's something that unites them, something that creates a synthesis, a harmony that's just pleasant to the eye. As a matter of fact, nobody really understands really what is is beauty. Why does beauty attract us? And beauty in the eyes of the beholder. And what is more objective when people say, everyone agrees, this is a beautiful face, or this is a beautiful sunset. What is it really defined by beauty? Is it something tangible? Is it something, the aesthetics of beauty are not easy to quantify, and as I said, it could also be in the eyes of the beholder. But there are certain principles that we all agree upon. It always connects to a form of harmony. Some type of harmony, some type of diverse forces all working in a synchronized way. When they don't work synchronized, it creates chaos. And it's actually disturbing. If you take those same colors, and instead of seeing them as part of a, uh, a, a, a masterpiece, a portrait, and someone combines them the wrong way or smudges them, it repels us. Put in the same colors, put in the right order, is beautiful. The same thing, take a puzzle. If a puzzle, a crossword puzzle, I'm uh, sorry, a jigsaw puzzle or something like that, if you put the pieces the wrong way, you see right away, it's, not, it's, it's no order, it's, it's uh, disturbing. You put them the right way, there's a certain uh, pleasantness, there's a certain comfort that we get when fits, things fit in. And this is in every possible way, whether it's mathematical equations, whether it's in business planning, whether it's in writing a book, or music. Again, many musical notes. One note can be a beautiful note, but that does not create music. That does not create beauty. Many different musical notes, different harmonies and different beats and different um, tempos and so on. Then you get yourself a composition and, again, a a masterpiece that is beautiful music. Many notes, many instruments, but in the right combination. Wrong combination, and you have noise. Not only noise, it can be actually... Disturbing noise. It can, be, it can be grating noise. So even though they say about jazz as the music of the streets, it's still a music. It may not be quite predictable as you'd find with um, other like pop music and so on, but there's still a harmony involved. And everything has that type of harmony. Nature itself has that beautiful harmony when everything working until unfortunately, humans or other get the way and disrupt the flow. the human body. The human body has millions and billions and trillions of cells and so many different systems. A healthy body is fluid, it flows, it's smooth. God forbid illness or disease or infection, impedes the way. It impedes the circulation, can block, can pinch a nerve, can create other discomforts because it's not flowing. So at the end of the day, when you talk about the word harmony, the word beauty, uh, it's all about a synergy. So you have color A, color A, color B and then they combine in a proper way. In Hebrew, in the Kabbalistic language that you hear about the spheres, the spheratic structure is usually called teferit, which actually means beauty, but it's also the harmony between love and discipline, between giving and between withholding, between a flow and harnessing of that flow. So Tiferet is the th- third dimension, the third partner that creates the harmony, the synergy. So you have a group of people, each with their own strengths. You need a conductor. You need a director. You need someone that takes everyone's strengths and gives them that harmon- harmonic, exp- uh, um, uh, harmonic dimension where everyone knows what their role is and where their role is not. You know? And that's the idea of the conductor, the person who's able to coordinate and that complement each other while each of us contributes our unique thing. So in the context of relationships, let's go now back to relationships, Yes, there are two partners. Every relationship thats a relationship. Relationship means there's one with a relationship with another. But what 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 happens when there's a clash? The two don't communicate with each other, and people have different opinions. Not—we're not even talking about malicious or um, uh, or uh, betrayal or any form of abuse. Just simply, two people have two different opinions, and it's and very common, and should be, be that way, because a relationship is not about annihilating or silencing one voice. It's about everybody expressing themselves. So the question is when there's a disagreement, what happens? How could they both win? Either you're right or I'm right. So yes, we have the concept of compromise. That each one gives a little, I won't get it all the way my way, you won't get it your way. But that still leaves room for resentment, still leaves room, room saying, you know what, I compromised, but I still don't agree with you. I just compromised for, for, the, for, a, for a greater cause. Ah, But then there's a level of compromise that the greater cause actually allows you to see the bigger truth and then it's not a compromise. You actually see that the other person's perspective complements your own and you're getting the best of both worlds. So there's compromise where we feel I gave up something and you know, I'm, I'm at peace with it because I got something in return. But then there's a compromise as we shall soon discuss that you come to realize no, you didn't give anything up. You actually got something in return even greater because you got another perspective. You got the strength of someone else That's beside your strength, which often happens with partners in business. So in the beginning, everything sounds good. You do this part, I do that part, I bring the money, you do the work. But then comes sometimes the conflict where one person thinks I'm doing more than the other. Why am I splitting it 50-50 profits when I'm putting in more than 50? And that idea that we came up with in a brainstorm session, it was my idea. That idea made us a lot of money. So why don't I get compensated? And often we oversee a simple fact that maybe that idea would not have come to you had you not been sitting with that other person. Sometimes it's, the, it's actually the clash and even the tension between two voices or two forces that brings out the best in each of you. You know, very often this happens in a brainstorm. I say an idea, someone counters it, there's an argument back and forth, and that argument, actually the counter-argument, which may not even be the end result, what we end up doing, but it brings out the best in the initial, argu- in the initial opinion, and at the end of the day, you, you underestimate and minimize how much the other person actually contributed. In addition, there are all kinds of contributions in a relationship that we oversee. The problem is our ego starts getting in the way, and we start thinking ourselves we're not being appreciated enough, we, we, should, be, we should deserve more. Bottom line is, so we may say I compromise for the good of the relationship, but I still feel a tinge of resentment or I feel like I've compromised. We're soon going to discuss, and we're we'll actually soon is now, that there's another level... And when you come to realize that the synergy is greater than your opinion, and it's not a compromise at all, when when music is played, let's 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 discuss it. The musical notes are different to musicians in an orchestra, right? When they're playing, imagine one musical note says, "You know what? I'm not getting enough credit. I played my 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 tone my 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 uh, my note. Now comes the other note, and it's taking more time than it's giving it. It's playing longer than it should." But that's how the conductor has set it up. And, the t- and this musical note or this uh, musician begins to be feel resentful. Why are the strings only playing three minutes and the, uh, and, and, uh, let's call it, the, 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 the trumpets are playing um, five minutes? That's very narrow minded thinking. You're thinking about you, you're not thinking about the greater good of the music. And let's say you would play a little longer, you'd find out the music is not so good that way. So you start saying, why not? That's why you need the third dimension that comes and says, you know what, your music is going to be actually enhanced and appreciated more in contrast to the others when the others play even maybe longer than you do, or even the same amount of time. So you come to realize it's not a compromise at all. Because imagine you didn't have those other instruments, you didn't have the other, the other sound instruments, then what would end up happening is you have what you played, but you would lack the the symphonic effect, the whole power of it. That would be like saying that the heart and the mind become resentful of each other, they want more time, or they feel they're more important than the other, and then they're going to be losing out everything that the other contributes, which makes you greater. So it's not about compromise. Okay, there's two forces, they're both competing for the same resources. Okay, well, compromise because we don't want to kill each other. So you get half, I get half. That's a very small-minded way of thinking. There's a much greater way of thinking, of understanding there's a greater whole. There's a greater objective. And each of us contributes to it. And actually I become more complete when I'm actually silent and let the other one compliment me when it comes their turn, and vice versa. So that requires a theme, an a, a idea of, I've often pointed out here called Bittle. That in addition to your strength, that which you bring to the table, you also have to have a measure of not just humility, but a certain suspension of self to recognize that what you bring to the table is not just for you and your self-fulfillment and self-actualization. It's actually necessary for the greater good. And that's why the other contributions are also necessary for the greater good. And the greater good is necessary for your personal actualization. And that's why you defer. Not you defer because you're compromising, because there's no choice. Okay, the only way to coexist is compromise. No, you come to realize that there's actually a, not just a reconciliation, but you all complement each other. So there's an expression used often about, uh, we say it in the morning prayers, that two verses contradict each other. Then comes the third verse and reconciles between them. So often you have the classic example for that is in the Bible you find the story that when they build the temple it says that God says I will speak through the through the holy of holies from the from the cover on the ark on the holy ark you will hear my voice Moses will hear the voice then in another verse it says that the voice will be heard through the passageway pesach the passageway the door to the great court that surrounded the holy of holies and the holy. seems a contradiction. Where did the voice come from? Did the divine voice come from the ark? Did it come from the passageway? So when you read it ostensibly, these two verses seem to contradict. Comes a third verse in the book of Numbers, which we read in a few weeks from now. It says that the voice exited, originated from the cover on top of the ark in the holy of holies, and it traveled through the passageway of the oil mayed of the court, the temple court. There you have the reconciliation. It's both. In one verse it emphasizes where it originated from. The other one emphasizes where it was amplified from. So when you hear a sound, sometimes the sound is coming to you from, let's say, a, even a device. But it's originating elsewhere. And so the question is asked... Why doesn't the Torah just simply state it initially that it originates here and it's heard through the, the third verse should have been there in the first place. So you wouldn't have to have two separate verses where there's a contradiction or seeming contradiction and then reconcile. And the answer given is a beautiful answer. What, what's, what is the reason that we hear the divine voice and why does it originate here and then amplify through here? The divine voice is basically the higher calling of each human being what the, the divine purpose of our lives that our soul is sent to this world and a divine voice basically declares and says your soul should go to this world and I'm blessing you and giving you the instructions to fulfill your man, my mandate through these particular resources and faculties so each person of us has, has that divine call that divine call originates in the high, deepest of all places the most intimate of holy places the holy of holies however That can be, for many of us, or for all of us, quite inaccessible. A divine voice from the Holy of Holies, that's a place that you have to be a very holy person to go there. Um, The high priest goes there once a year on Yom Kippur for a few moments. But the rest of us, we can't access that. So comes a second stage that the voice travels, and it travels to a place that all of us can relate to it. So in a way, it gets diluted in a certain way. Not diluted, I would say. I guess it gets harnessed, like a tzimtzum, that concentrates the voice, and now we can hear the voice coming through the passageway. That all of us can can relate to. Just to use an example, imagine a brilliant teacher that's so brilliant beyond all the students. If he starts speaking or she starts speaking, most of us will be lost and overwhelmed. So you need a teacher either to convey it through another teacher that's more closer to the students or that teacher himself goes through a stage where he concentrates his ideas and spoon-feeds them in a way the student can hear them. So the divine voice in its purest form is coming from the Holy of Holies and the Ark. The divine voice as it reaches us, think of it like through a translator, or through some type of interface, that makes it accessible to us. Which is why essentially even by the Ten Commandments, which we will soon be experiencing next week, uh, is the week of at the end of next week, we go to the first day of the holiday. We visit, We go to the synagogues and we hear the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Did they hear God's voice or did they hear Moses' voice? So it says everybody heard the first two commandments from God, but the other ones were too intense. It was too intense for them. That's why their souls expired. So they heard it through Moses. It was still God's voice, but it was Moses was the mouthpiece, like them. But you can think of it like the like the speaker, the loudspeaker. So that's why the Torah says one verse talks about how it is in its original form No, that all of us have that connection, comes all the way from the highest levels, that connection to the divine. The second verse talks about it, how we integrate it and internalize it in our lives. Two verses. Comes the third verse and says there's not a contradiction. It's the same voice that you're hearing is the voice that originates in the deepest of places. So what do you see from this? You see, it's not two verses that contradict And each verse has to compromise and say, you know what? I give half, you give half, and it's a deal. But none of the verses are compromised. At the end of the day, the third verse, not just reconciles them, actually gives us a deeper meaning in each one. Because the voice that comes out of the passageway benefits from knowing that it originates in the Holy of Holies. And the voice that comes out of the Holy of Holies benefits from the fact that it's traveling through the interface and reaching its intended objective. That is ultimate Synchronicity, ultimate symbiosis, where two things are working in perfect harmony. They each play their role, and then comes the Kasev Ashlishi, the third verse, Hamachriyeh B'neiim that reconciles. So there can be a reconciliation, like in moderate, like when you're when a person is a, a mediator. You mediate a disagreement, and you come with a compromise, and everyone's at peace. We're talking about we're talking about if they're at peace, but it doesn't mean they get everything that they wanted. I didn't get 30% of what I wanted. The other one didn't get 30% of what they wanted. And I could be at peace with that. And they lived peacefully. But there's still one thing missing there. They really did not get completely what they wanted. Then there's a level of mediation where the mediator is so good at, at it that he convinces and explains them both you're actually, even if, when you compromise, you're actually getting more than you bargained for, more than you even wanted, because the other person will give you their strengths that you would never have gotten had you not compromised, And then you came to realize maybe it's not a compromise. It's actually my benefit that I didn't, it's not going all the way my way because if it went my way, we would never succeed. And this often happens again in business. Sometimes you give in, you yield, and you know what happens? You make a lot more money had you gone your way and you realize it afterwards. So compromise can be a compromise that's literal compromise or it can be a third invisible partner that actually introduces a higher dimension and then you realize I would never have known of that dimension had I not had my partner. And that comes back to relationships. Very often people see marriage and uh, that type of relationship as being okay, it's beautiful to be married, there's a lot of benefits. But you know what? I have to give up my single life. All the fun, all this, the uni- unilateral decisions you make. You don't have to ask anybody, you don't have to tell anybody where you're going, where were you last night, where were you tomorrow, and so on. You're not accountable. So many people think, okay, fine, marriage brings uh, a certain peace of mind. I have a person that loves me and cares about me. There's a partnership. We build a family. There's children. A lot of benefits. But, uh, but I'm giving up a lot, and we sometimes miss what we give up. That's an attitude, the first approach, which is, is give and take to everything. And there's some things you give up. The real cynics like Woody Allen will say, marriage is the death of hope. Obviously, anyone in a bad marriage is going to say that people in a good marriage are going to say it's the birth of hope. Why? Because all you have when you're alone is as much as you can have. And here you can have so much more qualitatively because you are now a partner with another and there's a synergy that can never be created. That one person in relationship with themselves can never, as much as you love yourself, you can never create what you have when you love another and they love you. Socrates was once asked by his students, should they get married? And he answered, uh, purportedly, he answered, Yes, if it's a good marriage, you learn about love, and if it's a bad marriage, you'll become philosophers. <laughs> right? OK. So love means love means two hearts. Two individuals come together, and they don't compromise. they don't become less, they become more. In the words of the Bible, again, God created male and female, separated them, and when they join, rejoin. They become greater than they would have been alone or even when they were together in the first place because they were initial, initially, according to many of the sages and opinions and the Kabbalists, they were created a dragonous creature, back to back. One side was male, one side was female. But they weren't facing each other. They were facing back to back. Then came a thing called the Nesir. Nesir is the separation. God separated them. And that's why they look for each other because they're looking to reconnect to the initial unity what scientists are always looking for, the unified field theory, to the initial unity, as they were when they were creating the divine image. Now there's something missing. This doesn't mean they can't have fulfilling lives alone, but there's something that cannot be fulfilled by yourself. The love that you get from another cannot be ever replicated by loving yourself. That's why the love of parents to children is so vital. Yes, we can compensate for it and learn to nurture ourselves, but there's nothing when another person at their own volition, chooses to love you, there's no greater validation. And when you don't have that, you end up thinking, do I deserve to be loved? And then, yes, you may love yourself a lot, but often it's compensation, and it's really a love that's hiding self-loathing and the fear and insecurity that maybe I don't deserve to be loved. That's why you'll find a lot of people who are lacking or starving for love become very uh, arrogant and very um, self-protective because they're fighting for oxygen. And they've never received it from another or have received it in a compromised way. The idea of someone loving you unconditionally says that you're worthy of love. That can never be replicated by yourself because everyone has self-love. So that which comes from another, and that's why they look for each other, the male and female. And what happens when they join? They join face to face. They embrace each other face to face and are intimate with each other face to face. So they began back to back as one. They separated, and now when they come together, they're even greater because they become one flesh, face-to-face flesh as one unit. So that, that, is, so that in that sense, is there a compromise of your single life? Not only is there compromise, the single life, the single individual you are, the one entity, was never complete, is not complete without the other. And the other is not a compromise, oh, I will get something from them, I give something. No, the other makes you come back to the original unity that you were once part of. So it's essentially a transcendence that it reintroduces in love. So think of it this way. If you are a single person and you live your life single, as a single person and not marry ever and not find the love of another, ends up being you're never going to experience true transcendence. Because the transcendence is all going to be a reflection of yourself, an extension of yourself. Transcendence means, by definition, transcending yourself. How is that possible if there's no other in your life? No significant other. So essentially, transcendence, does it make you greater or does it make you less? So initially you say, you know what, my comfort zone is I like to be alone. I like to be, that's your comfort zone. But your greatness, the greatest thing that you can achieve is when you have transcendence. That as much as you accomplish in this world is when you serve something greater than yourself or cause greater than yourself, then you become greater than yourself. So at the end of the day, relationships seen in that light, it's a whole different story. That makes you a greater person. Not a compromise, but actually, like with the verses that I mentioned, that one verse actually complements the other and adds to it, doesn't subtract. But yes, there is something to give. You also have to add to that one. So what you, we don't like about it, perhaps, is getting out of our comfort zone. We don't like that we are accountable to someone else. But that's only the, 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 the technique, that's the mechanics of it. The real deeper meaning is because you are accountable to a higher force that's higher. It's not to the other. It's to a higher force. This third partner in relationships, I've not even spelled out what that force is. I'm talking about Bittal. I'm talking about now, you'll see in a wedding ceremony, you have the chuppah, the canopy. The canopy symbolizes the third dimension because the bride stands here, the groom here their families are there so you have all the other partners that I mentioned before but there's one most important partner the true third partner that is, it hovers above them all what is a chuppah? it hovers, it's called in the Kabbalistic language a makif Is the chuppah hover over one more than the other? no, it's an equalizer when you stand under a canopy everybody's equal the man, the woman, the family members, everyone. This is the presence of the divine. That you realize that a relationship is not just the sum of the parts. It's not just two people agreeing to love each other, committed to each other. It's two people also agreeing to a contract called the transcendent contract that transcends them both. That there's a cause and there's a vision that's more than the, each one of them. That's the synergy. When musicians sit in a symphony, an orchestra, I'm sorry, and they're playing a symphony, they all realize that besides my own strengths that I bring, and besides recognizing everyone else's strengths, there's a conductor. There's a third force that is coordinating us. So yes, my turn comes, I play. My turn comes, I am quiet. Then the other turn comes. I need them, they need me. But we all submit to a third dimension which is not me and not you, but the entire musical com- uh, symphony, the entire musical composition. And that's an invisible third, because it's not there. When you look at an orchestra, or you see many musical notes, you don't see that third dimension, you just see many notes. But when someone plays them in harmony, there's a synergy. And synergy is more than the sum of the parts. In Kabbalistic terminology, in Hasidic terminology, sometimes called, al what does that mean? An energy That rises above them all. Classic example. Take any word. Usually the word used is a Hebrew word, Baruch. Everybody knows Baruch means blessed. Baruch consists of four letters. Bez, Resh, Vav, Or think in English, B-L-E-S-S, or B-L-E-S-S-I-N-G, or blessed. These letters independently, a B, or bays a reish Vav, Chaf, separately... Bayes is a letter in alphabet. It could be used in many ways. It could be used in many words. A B. You can use the word a B in building. You can use the word a B in boy. A B in uh, baloney. And bull. And BS. One extreme, the other. So a B is a neutral letter that can be used in many ways. Same thing with the next letter. Let's say L in blessing. L has many other words. You put them together is the word bless, B-L-E-S-S. That's five letters. Is that a sum of the parts? Or when you put them in that order together, you suddenly get a word that means much more than just a B plus an L plus an E plus an S and an S. Or just more than just a B plus a Beis plus a Resh plus a vov and plus a khof That's technically those words, but now you get a message. When I say to you Baruch, it's more than just four letters. It's a word that you're being blessed and bless is far, far greater than the, sum, than the than the parts. It conveys a meaning that's much deeper. When you're reading a book, it has chapters upon chapters, word, it's, it's paragraphs upon paragraphs, sentences, le- words, letters. You're not reading letters, words. You're reading ideas. You're reading sentiments, an experience, a narrative. You can sometimes be so absorbed in a book you don't even notice that you're reading. You don't even notice you're turning the pages. Why? Because you're picking up the energy and the spirit of the message. And even sometimes the between the lines, which is real communication. It's not the words that are being said. I'm speaking now. I'm using a lot of words. It's actually a miracle language you know, that we're able to speak. But if I'm conveying something intelligently, and hopefully in the way that resonates, you're picking up a message, not the words. Now the words make up the message. There would be no other way to communicate or convey them. That's called synergy. So now let's apply it to ourselves, and you'll see it's so simple in nature, so simple in music, so simple in communication. But when it comes to the, our personal lives, it's so difficult. You see, because when I'm using my words, the words don't have a uh, free will to say, you know what, we're not going to coordinate with each other. The speaker controls that. When, musicians, when musical notes are being played by, by a musician, they are following the musician's guidelines. But when it comes to human beings, we have free will. We suddenly can decide, you know what? I'm not interested in playing my, my, I'm not, I'm I'm interested, I'm going to walk off the stage of this orchestra and not play. Or I'm angry and I'm jealous or I'm resentful of the others. That happens only in our world. But think how absurd it is. It actually makes you greater when you're part of that, because that's what, you know, imagine the word be would say, I don't want to be part of this word called bless. I have my own life. I'm a single I'm on a party, I'm not interested in being part of another word. The B will never become part of a blessing if it does that. If the B cooperates and gives and contributes its emphasis of B, and the L does the same, and the E, and the S, and the S, and the I-N-G, or there's the bless, all of them, not just the B, all of them become enriched individually and collectively. That is a true relationship, that there's one there's A, there's B, and then there's C, that's transcendent, the canopy, that equalizes them all, and all are, in a way, surrender to it. I don't want to use surrender in a negative way, I mean out of strength. They accept the higher cause, just like the musicians follow the conductor and they don't do it the way they like. Just like actors in a film follow a director, you can't have everyone being a director. And that makes the actor far better. Ask true actors, they'll always say, even though I may have been resentful, that director brought the best out of me. Had I been done it on my own, I would never have shined like that. That's what true synergy is about. Now very often, it breaks down because of egos, because of resentments, because of politics, because of our own personal petty stuff. So in a relationship, the third partner is the divine. That's why it says, that every child that's born, that's the Talmud that I'm basing this on. Every child is born, there are three partners. The father, the mother, and God. The father and mother supply the body, the features of the body, the physical parts of the body, the cells, the blood, and all that the body entails. And God provides the soul. So you can have a husband and wife together, and... It may, not, it may not be blessed by the third partner, so the soul will not enter into what the father and mother contributed. So you always need that third partner. The third partner is an invisible partner. The soul is not that visible. The body is visible, but the soul is critical because without that you don't have life. So when you think of it in our personal lives, what really the real secret ingredient, what really makes us the healthiest people we can be is this third partner the third partner literally in relationships, marriages, and physical relationships and human relationships, but also even in your own life, the transcendent third force that is more than the sum of the parts. That's ultimately the secret that keeps something not just going and the glue that connects it, but a transcendent dimension that makes everything greater than it would have been on its own. So as great as you are on your own, when you introduce transcendence, The canopy, the third partner, you're always going to be greater. The Talmud, it says that in Hebrew, the name for man and the name for woman actually has the same letters with one distinction. Ish is male. Isha is female, is woman. They both sound alike. Ish, Isha. They both have three letters. Both have two letters the same are ish, which is fire, Aleph, Shin. In the male, there's a Yud in between the Aleph and the Shin, And the woman, there's a female, there's a hay at the end of the Aleph and the Shin. So the Talmud says, if they take away the yud and the hay, which is the name of God, the third partner, you have two flames, two angry flames, two aggressive flames, I don't know about angry but aggressive, and they don't have the ability to work together. You add the yud by the ish, the yud, and the hay in the in the female. Isha, the yudah and hey is the glue, the bind, the bond, the transcendence that turns them into flames that when they meet, they melt into each other as one, instead of clashing. So it's the soul of each of them, not their bodies, not their egos, not their personalities, the soulfulness of their relationship. Now it's interesting, by the ish it says the Yud comes between the two letters, and the hey by the woman is at the end. I've never seen an explanation given, but I've, i thought on this is also con- consistent with the fact that by the male it's a yud, and by the woman it's a hey. Because in the Kabbalistic terminology, the yud represents chokhmah, chokhmah is the father, and the hey, bina, represents the female. What does a father provide in the birth of a child? A seed. A seed is like a spark. Sperm. That's like a yud, it's a dot. What does the woman provide? the ovary, the egg, and the womb. The womb is an expanded area. That's where the seed settles, fertilizes the egg, and that's where the fetus, hopefully blessed, will develop. A yud is not a place for for, uh, an environment to live in. A yud is a contributor. It's an ingredient. It's It's a spark that's necessary. Without it, you don't have the fertilization. But it's the hay that is the cavity that creates a compartment, like a hay. A hay is a compartment. And a yud is just a spark or dot. So what about their placement? So let's talk about this a little more, about the yud and the hay. So the yud is a, as I said, is a spark. Spark defines bittle. When something is just a concentrated dot, it always refers to bittle. It doesn't have any substance. A hay, even though it's necessary, it's a compartment, but it has to have substance. That's its whole basis. But if you think about it, a hay is not a closed chamber. It has a spout. A hay has three legs. There's a roof, a right leg, and a left leg, that the left leg is disconnected from the roof. So there's a spout, which is also signifies bitl. A ches, for example, the letter ches, is three lines. A roof, and right line, and left line. There's no breathing room. Think of a kettle that doesn't have a spout. That's why on Passover, chametz and matzah, again, are made up of the same letters. Matzah, mem tzaddik, chametz mem tzaddik. The difference is the hay and the ches. Because the hay is the food of humility, an inflated ego doesn't have any uh, any uh, words um, spouts. It doesn't have the humility to release the harir. The ches is a combustion chamber that is in, in self-contained. The hay has that spout that allows air out of it, so it's it's a, humil- humil- a, a humility factor. Hoyd. So what we have here is both Yudah and hay. both represent bitl, but one is a bitl that's purely just completely spark, and one is a bitl within a chamber called the hay. Now, it is a chamber, but it is a humble chamber. I tell the story about the little girl who asked her pregnant mother. said, Mommy, how do you have room inside yourself for another person, for another life? When I heard that, I said to myself, interesting, men... Hardly have room for people outside of them. And here a woman for nine months not only has room inside of her, it completely occupies. Not like a little corner, a little closet with the child. It completely, a new life takes over. And the woman is affected from head to toe. And and 24-7. What does that do for a human being? What kind of psyche do you need to have? You need to have a tremendous measure of humility. And maybe that's why women are blessed with that capacity because they say if men we got pregnant we wouldn't have children and women have the capacity to contain another person that's a tremendous power of nurturing so perhaps that's why the hay comes at the end because the woman has by nature her hay is a humble one so it comes at the end of the fire and the fire is then tamed by that hay by a man, you better put the yud in right away because he does not have easily room for others. His ego is stronger. So you can't wait till the end to make a, a aleph, shin, yud. You stick the yud right between the aleph and shin and just make sure the flame doesn't get out of control too quickly. So the hay can go to the end and the woman, the man, is there. That's a thought. But either way, both need the yud and the hey. They both need that humility. They both need the third partner. The third partner that turns them into, instead of clashing flames... Unifying flames. What happens when two flames come together? They don't fight. They join. They literally kiss each other. You see, you can see they're drawn to each other like a kiss. And they become one and both become greater. Not one of them has lost anything. They have both become greater. Not one has been swallowed up by the other. Even if one flame is a smaller flame and the other is a larger flame, they still both become greater because they have both submitted themselves to a force and a greater cause that's greater than themselves. That's the third partner. There's nowhere in life where you don't need the third partner for success. Everyone needs it in everything we do. So counter-intuitively that most people think, oh, if I was a self-made man, a self-made person, and I could do it all myself, that's greatness. Don't give me the need, I need other people, I need God, I need a third dimension. Think about that. Is there anything in this world that would really grow and thrive with that type of attitude? If every part of nature said that, I'm self-contained, no, no give and take, what would we have? We'd have? We wouldn't have a universe. We wouldn't have life. If the human body said that, we wouldn't have health. Nothing in life works if it's a self-contained, completely self-contained entity. It's always about harmony of different forces contributing to each other. It's only the human being, actually, because of our free will that has the capacity to say no. No. I am taking care of myself now. I'm not interested in anyone else. And ironically, you'd be greater if you were interested in others and they would be interested in you. You would become greater. Because there's nothing as great as transcending yourself. That's true transcendence. So someone say, I want transcendence on my terms. That's a joke. That's transcendence that's not transcendence. That's transcendence on your terms means it's not transcendence. It's like uh, that story they say. I read it somewhere. You know, An analogy, I guess. There was this executive sitting on a Monday morning saying that he had this great weekend that he spent $5,000 on. He went one of these Iron, uh, what do they call Iron John weekends where you go and men join together. And they reconnect to their masculinity and their power and their after being so emasculated. And what do they do? They wear skins. They grunt. They sweat. They climb mountains. You know, they do everything to bring out that, the male in them, the male, the alpha male, aggressive alpha male, the testosterone. Okay, and he's sharing how, much he's, how, how great it was. It was a real empowering experience. One of the workers, he was, a const- was working in the construction there, says, boss, if you want to sweat, why don't you come work with us for a day in the project? And you'll see what sweating is about. So the boss, the executive says that. I don't have time for that during the week. On a weekend, I scheduled it, I planned it, and then I have time. So the guy, the worker says, boss, when you sweat, when you wanna sweat, that ain't sweating at all. If you sweat when you wanna sweat, that's not sweating at all. So it's like saying, my comfort zone is now not to be comfortable. Okay, so you scheduled it for spontaneous dancing at 9 p.m. That's not spontaneous. Spontaneous means, sweating means that when you don't want to, when it's not comfortable, that's truly getting out of your comfort zone. So I'm going to plan a weekend, three hours, I'm going to be out of my comfort zone, then I'm back in my comfort zone. Okay. So the idea is true transcendence is not another thing on your to do list. It's actually transcending yourself, getting uncomfortable till it hurts in a good way, to give till it hurts, to grow till it hurts. To go where, where you feel uncomfortable, you feel out of your element, you feel pressure, you even feel angst, because you don't have what you want. Anyone that does it in a way that they want it, then, then it's shortcuts that are not. The Talmud says, someone who says, I have toiled and not earned, do not believe them. They say, I have not toiled and I have earned, do not believe them. Say, I have toiled and I have earned, then you believe them. Toil, earning, you yield as much as you sow. You produce that which you invest. So someone says, I don't invest and I gained profit. You don't believe them. Someone says, I invested but I didn't gain. You also don't believe them. But if they say, I've invested and I've gained. And investment means investment. It means applying yourself. Entering, engaging, even to the point where you're not in control. And then you get the greatest thing of all, true transcendence. Now, if someone doesn't relate to that, they don't relate to it. I'm not going to go argue with anyone. People want to stay in their comfort zone. It's one of the hard things to challenge. But don't tell me intellectually that that's called real transcendence. Transcendence is actually being pressured to do something that you were not comfortable doing. And that's how you grow, achieve excellence. You push it. You get the pressure, the deadline. You press the olive, it produces the greatest oil. That's transcendence. It's effort, it's exertion, and it's worth it because what you get in return is something you can never ever get without effort. So you have in school, I'm sure everybody's been to class had classmates who great great minds. They were able to in five minutes listen to something and get what everyone took hours. And they got away with it because they took for granted. And they began to never having to effort because they know that they could get away with a good mind. You can get away and doing things better than others with effort. But then look at some people who really invest effort, true effort. They may not have initially begun with the same level of pure brain power. But they can come to a point with more thoroughness and more reliability and in a way more depth even than the pure brain power of someone that gets got it as a gift. So the Talmud says... Adam rates a person desires more one measure that they earn on their own than nine measures that are given to them as a gift. But $9 or $9,000 or $900,000 can buy a lot more than 100000 You can buy a lot more, but it can also be blown quicker. And you don't really appreciate it, because it's not yours, you didn't really earn it. It's given to you. And look how people behave when they're, it's that way. There's something that's called in the Talmud, nema Sufa, bread of shame. It's shameful to receive a gift. That's why it says, dislike gifts. That doesn't mean we shouldn't receive a gift. But don't ever allow that to replace the effort that's necessary. There's an interesting story with the Tzema who was, as a young man, was offered by his grandfather. His grandfather's daughter, Dvorale gave her life for her father, and she asked in return that you take care of my son. The name was Menachem Mendel. So the Shneir Zalm of the Adi, the Rav Shneir Zalman, took care of his grandson, son of Dvorale. Once he offered him a gift the the scholar, the prodigy, offered his grandson a gift, a certain amount of knowledge in Torah. Tzemek Tzedek said, no, I want the third partner. If I want the third partner, I need to exert myself. I need to go out of my own comfort zone. As a gift, I want to earn my way. And he rejected that knowledge. Years later, as he grew older, he regretted doing that because he realized the Torah It's as long as the greatest of land, of earth, the span of, of, the, of land and, the, and, like the, and as wide as the widest sea. Basically it's infinite. It's as much as I would have received as a gift I could have always used the effort and exertion to go further. And he never and he regretted it. What's the point of the story what he was not wise enough the first time he didn't understand that it was infinite? Because he was debating both, both the benefit of effort, which internalizes, makes it yours, and you also connect to something that's beyond you because you're making an effort. The gift, you may get something great, but it's not yours, and it may not be the greatest because you didn't really work hard at it. Then he regretted because he could have both. You can receive and then exert yourself and reach even more than that. And that's the story of our lives. Comfort zones are very comfortable, but precisely because of that, it doesn't push us and motivate us. And we don't have the impetus to grow. Then suddenly you hear a competitor is doing it. Someone else is going to gain. Suddenly we wake up and we go crazy and we say, no, I got to do it. Why? Because competition helps. There's a healthy form of jealousy. Kinesov from Tar Chachma says the jealousy of scholars, of each other, increases in wisdom, because the challenge. So comfort zones are very comfortable. And there are some people actually, instead, they would like to kill the competition. Instead of realizing the competition is going to make you greater, the second verse that contradicts you is not a contradiction. It's only a contradiction to bring the best out of you, and then both of you are the greatest. Because everybody does their effort. It's not just about winning. It's about achieving the higher purpose, the higher cause. So you see, my friends... Initially, when we think about these ideas, we always think in narrow terms, what is success? What is a healthy relationship? You know, a partner, another partner, I make my compromises. This is an opportunity for every one of us, no matter what stage in your life, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are later on in your life, wherever you are, the power of transcendence, the power of the third partner, which makes you greater because you're going outside of your parameters outside of your boundaries, and it's out of your limited perspective by seeing another perspective, or by being intrigued and in awe of the mystique of another perspective. You don't even have to understand it. That itself is a very healthy thing, to know that there are things that are beyond you, and you still embrace them. To have the courage to dare to allow yourself to be vulnerable and recognize that you don't have to always be comfortable. And that itself is a tremendous experience. Because when you have the confidence to do that, you have the confidence to get to places you can never get to on your own. Now most of us wouldn't think of it that way. They think, control, I know where I'm going, I'm in in, in charge. Those things get you some places, but they don't get you to the places we're talking about. You want to reach the highest of the highest, you need to go into a transcendent mode which requires you to step step back and realize there's something that another person brings that you do not bring. And that will ultimately bring you to a place you can never bring yourself to on your own. Scientists say you cannot, you cannot change a system from within a system. As long as it's yourself, as I mentioned before, as long as it's a reflection of yourself, it'll be only as great as you are. You want to change a system, you need to go outside of the system. And that's what the other partner does, but both of them recognizes the third partner that does it for everybody. The third partner, the third invisible partner that allows both to transcend. So yes, that works through your partner, because there's the yud and the hey of each one of them. But both of them submitting to the third partner ultimately is the recognition that we are both equal in that sense. We're both equally necessary and that we're both equally complement each other and need the other. And then you come to a point of recognition, what transcendence does for you. True transcendence, going, being vulnerable, vulnerable, and recognizing the mystique. Not you don't have to understand everything. There's nothing wrong with standing in awe of some things. That awe allows you to experience something greater than yourself. That's why you're in awe. If you controlled it, you'd never be in awe of it. If a sunset was something you can just replicate in your little uh, your phone, or you can just capture in a bottle, its beauty and power is as beyond us. Solar eclipse. Other things that bring that evoke awe in our lives, and of course, the mystique of our spouses, of our partners, and of course, the mystique of the divine partner, which transcends all transcendences. so I hope this does some justice to approach this topic, which again is so vital in all our areas of lives, our individual lives, our collective lives, our family marital lives, our family lives, even relationships with children, teaching people. The need for this transcendence—the need that it's not all about me, me, me. So many of us are taught if you don't get it, if you don't fight for it, you're not going to get it. You're taught that it's all about you, survival of the fittest. To come to realize, introduce this ingredient to your children, to yourself, to everyone you meet. That yes, there's a need to do, to fight for something. There's a need to go, get it. But there's also a need to understand, to stand in awe, and humility that there's things greater than us. And that's where we should make our efforts to get out of our comfort zone to embrace those higher truths, those higher causes. And with that, we allow and, and introduce the element of eternity into our relationships, forever after. As I've discussed many times, in every relationship, you need that physical compatibility. Two people physically drawn to each other, sexual attraction. Mo- then you need emotional compatibility. You could love somebody, see a beautiful face, a beautiful model, And then there's no one there. When you talk to them, there's no emotional connection, emotional compatibility. And then there's intellectual compatibility. Two people who respect each other's ideas, share interests, read together. But all those three, as important as they are, are all subject to change. Looks change, emotions change, intellectual curiosity changes. And then we find people who are more exciting or more novel because we're already accustomed to the ones that we know, to the one that we know. Then comes, however, the fourth. That's spiritual compatibility. This is what we're talking about, transcendence. To of you, not it's not about looks and it's not about emotional, not about intellectual, it's about recognizing there's something greater than both of us and we both want that cause, something that we dedicate our lives to a greater cause that's greater than both of us, a family we want to build that's greater than us, a cause, what mark we want to leave in the world, and that does not change. That is the secret to eternity. So, eternal relations are dependent on eternal force that you introduce. The third partner introduces eternity. Why? Because two mortals are mortals. How could they create eternity? Everything mortal changes. Everything mortal is subject to erosion, deterioration, aging, death, mortality. But when you introduce the third partner, that's an immortal partner, an invisible one, an intangible one, a one that represents transcendence of the mortal. Transcendence of the mundane of the finite. then you introduce infinity in the palm of your hand, in Blake's words. Then you introduce eternity, eternity into our mortal lives, that even the mortal can access immortality, because you've connected to something that's beyond your mortal side. You've connected the you and the hey, you've connected to the divine third partner. So with that as we approach the holiday of Shavuot which will be one more class next week which will be a pre-Shavuot workshop but Shavuot is compared to a marriage because it's the marriage of the divine and the human the marriage between heaven and earth Sinai and earth and therefore the marriage between our souls and our bodies and the marriage between transcendence and existential and we need both and we are they each complement each other and they each infuse each other with a total transformation of existence to something that is beyond existence. So everyone have a very loving, transcendent third partner week. As the Kotzka Rebbe was once asked, where is God? He responded, wherever you let him in. It's our egos and our control, our need for control and controlling our space that doesn't allow anyone in. As I mentioned before, the woman allows another in. We have to all have that so-called emptiness, that space that we allow another in. And that's where the third partner enters. You have to leave room for the third partner. If you're completely preoccupied with yourself, there's no room not only for a third partner, there's no room for a second partner. And then those cynics are right, that it's a relationship with yourself. You're looking in the water at yourself. However, when, when you recognize it's not just about me, and you do allow another, and ultimately allow the third author, the third partner, then one heart reflects in another in the deepest and most profound and intimate way. So everyone have a very transcendent, as I said, a very um, third partner type of week. Until next week, this has been Simon Jacobson, meaningfullive.com. We're on your channels, Facebook. You can like us, share, YouTube and all the other technological miracles today that we can convey, can distribute this message to anyone out there. Everyone be blessed, and I look forward to next week. Please share your comments, questions, and see us as partners, as partners, three partners, us, you, and the divine, in our mutual journey toward transcendence and toward redemption. Everyone be blessed. Thank you.